The following show is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary, and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Welcome to Discovering Responsible Wealth. This is your host, Frank Angelos. Our guest today, Bob Farrell, one of our partners over at CNA Financial Group and at Tomorrow Financial. Bob, welcome to the program. It's great to see you. Hey, Frank. How are you? So, Bob, the last time we had an event, um, I think the last thing that we did was a webinar in the middle of March, you know, when we had significant market volatility um, and we were just getting to the point of, you know, COVID and what it might mean. And it, we had a lot of uncertainty. And so, you know, on my behalf and so forth, it's so nice to be back. It's so great to be in communication with all of our clients and friends and our community. And so, I thought what we'd spend some time today doing is just kind of getting an update on how different the world has gotten over the last few months, what's going on, uh, some perspectives, and then uh, what should we be doing? So, you know, if I think the last few months and I just had a few highlights, uh, we had COVID. Nobody ever thought that we would see a pandemic in our lifetime, and here we are. We're still going through it. We saw unemployment get out of control. Um, at one point, it hit almost 15%. Uh, now it's been tailing off, and that happened so quickly that if I were to look at what unemployment was on the first of the year, it'd say 4% and change, jumping up to you know almost 15% in a matter of you know 60 days, 90 days, unbelievable. We went through a market correction. Um, we don't know if we're still out of that yet, and now we've got the government, which is just you know printing money, pumping money into the economy. And we're going to talk a little bit about it. And we also have social conflict going on. We've got protests. We've got a lot of different issues going on. And on top of that, a presidential election, which is starting to take form. And, you know, you know it was interesting because, Bob, when I was sitting here this morning, and I go, well, we'll go through all this today. And then I go and I just pull up something on you know, my computer. And I said, oh, and on top of that, it's the anniversary of the dot-com uh, bus. Yes, the anniversary. Yeah, if you think about that, which in 2000. So, you know, because I know right now the hot word has been the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ. And then I look back and I go, I'm hearing a lot about the NASDAQ. You know, I heard, I've been doing this for a while. I've heard a lot about the NASDAQ back in 2018. I'm sorry, in, in 1998, 1999. And then I remember in 2000, we had the dot-com bust. And so it was interesting is, you know, I don't know if history repeats itself. Yeah. But hopefully not. <laughs> I, I, I hope it doesn't, Frank. And, you know, just to touch upon it, if you think about the last time we chatted, which was three months ago, we started, COVID was an international, it was a China problem. And the, and the problem, if, you know, people recall, we talked about a supply chain issue in the United States. Yep. Right. And that was the impact to our economy. In a matter of three short weeks after that, it was a COVID issue in the United States. And I think that's the biggest thing, that the market started to feel what happens in the U.S. if our global supply chain would be shut off and our reliance on other countries, most notably China, for basic, basic production of everything from an air conditioner part to medical supplies. Uh, and I think that will change going forward, and I think that will be a positive coming out of this thing. But very quickly, COVID became a U.S. problem and how it kind of spread which immediately leads to unemployment. Um, truth be told, at 14.7, I'm surprised it's not higher. I think that well, states I've, are- I've seen numbers as high as in yeah. the 20s, and you know, a lot of that was the PPP program, which is where you know, 
businesses were getting government money keeping people on payroll so that they didn't go on unemployment. Yeah, and, and people still need to understand that the unemployment number that's the public print of 14.7 dropping to 11, that is a household survey, right, that they're surveying a couple thousand people. That is not, it's somewhat random, but over time it is accurate. And the issue one could have with that is how that manifests itself into a number in light of what's happening. Because companies shut down, um, the stimulus programs were aggressive, people don't know who's still on unemployment, who's on unemployment, who's getting paid on a PPE. Um, and, and I think right now that if somebody were to say we'd have a global pandemic and unemployment's 11%, I would be surprised, I'd be stunned. Um, my concern right now with unemployment is the PPP effectively is over. Um, yes, companies have the monies to use to pay for expenses, but when it comes to paying employees, that PPP money run out. Um, so I would anticipate a pretty significant jump in unemployment because unfortunately, the one industry that we know that has not really come back is the service industry. Um, we've experienced, truth be told, hell in New Jersey and in the state of New York, and we've combated it, but numbers are growing in other places. So the likes of California, the likes of Florida, the likes of Texas, are kind of in places where we were back in early April. So restaurants are not open. Uh, service industry is shut down. So I would anticipate that number gradually going higher. And I, I know that they're kind of working on an additional stimulus program. I don't know what comes out of that, but unemployment will be higher, or it should be higher in the next couple of months. So one of the things I think I'd like to spend some time on today is really helping all of our listeners to really be able to maintain um, a reality check, which is, you know, so when we hear, you know, uh, the NASDAQ is up 24% and we're hearing uh, the Dow is up and the S&P is up and so forth, and yet they might get their uh, 401k statement or an investment statement in a globally diversified portfolio and go, why am I still down? Why is this showing down? And the reality is, is certain asset classes are up but most asset classes, because this has been a global environment, are actually down, and they're down considerably. And there are certain sectors that have been hot, certain ones that aren't. So maybe um, we can address different asset classes. Because, Certainly. you know, it's interesting as I sit here and I have in front of me, you know, from one of our uh, favorite companies, BlackRock, and I get a breakdown of asset class returns that, you know, we review, we look at it, and that's when we design portfolios and so forth. And I can look historically, you know, if I go back to 2000, you know, and I go back 20 years and I look and I go, well, large cap growth, which is a hot topic now, or the NASDAQ, okay, back then, that was the worst performing asset class. It was down 22%. And on top of that, I look and I go, so that was down 22% and large cap growth was up seven. So the disparity in range, they're almost 30%. And then I've got fixed income, which are bonds were 11% that year. And so here we are today in 2020, which is the NASDAQ off the chart, okay? And then if we talk, and we'll talk a little bit about bonds, we'll talk about bond yields, we'll talk international. When I look at some of those, they're not there. Yeah. And it, so we've got to understand is you can't predict the future. Well, I think that I definitely agree with. And I think one of the things that highlights is the necessity to have a diversified portfolio. Um, so most clients feel that they look at CNBC or the paper and they look at the S&P and they look at the NASDAQ and they're the two bellwethers of the market. Um, the Na both have recovered nicely. Truth be told, NASDAQ is at an all-time high. Uh, NASDAQ's up almost 20% this year. Um, but one of the things people need to be aware of is the NASDAQ is a concentrated index. 
and not every stock in the NASDAQ is up 20%. And the weighting and the amount of weighting the top four or five stocks account for the NASDAQ as a percentage is significant. It's double digits. So you have a 100 indice where the line, you know, the top 10% is in a very selected group of stocks that have knocked the cover off the ball based on this pandemic. And I think that's very important for clients to look at, that you can't say that that is a benchmark of a portfolio because if you were to look at the breakout of something like NASDAQ, you have stocks that have doubled, if not tripled. Conversely, there are stocks in NASDAQ that are down on the year, right? So it's not, I think that's very, very important. It highlights why diversity in a portfolio is very important. So this year we've seen a couple of very unique things. We've seen growth outperform. We've seen value underperform. We've seen um, the S&Ps unchanged on the year. And honestly, Frank, if somebody would have told me in December of last year, we were gonna go through a global pandemic and the economy was shut down globally and you're unchanged on the year, I think most people would say, where can I sign up right now? Um, and, and I think that's there because of what our, the central banks have done. Um, which has been unprecedented measures. Um, not only the stimulus that they've afforded when it comes to the ordinary Joe in the market, uh, it's how they've supported the market in an unprecedented way. If one thinks about what occurred in the financial crisis in 2008, um, historically one of the ways the Federal Reserve, which is our central bank, would control the market and control interest rates, they would lower rates to a point where they would, what, what historically people call it, it's a put on, you know, they, they underwrote a put, that they know that if it ever really crashed, the Fed's there to support it. And what they would do is basically make money free. Well, it got to the point in 2008 and 2009 that they made money free, didn't really help. So they needed to find a way to do additional support. Um, that process is called quantitative easing. So what the Federal Reserve would do would expand its balance sheet and they would purchase assets to support the market. Now, in 2009 and 2010, that support was US government securities, US government agencies, and mortgage-backed securities. Um, what that did, it kept lending rates low, and we came out of that economy, we came out of that crisis, you know, QE, a Fed balance sheet went from 800 billion to about 4 trillion, to give you an idea. Um, but we came out of it nicely. Uh, Fed started raising rates sometime in 15 or 16. Now we get into this situation, realizing that rates are already at zero. What could we do? Um, they took the unprecedented step to expand the QE program to include certain asset classes that were really underperforming, not because of a creditworthy side, it's because of a liquidity issue. Um, so the Federal Reserve started purchasing corporate bonds as well as um, municipal bonds. An unprecedented step, but it definitely supported the market. And I think that's why we see some of these asset classes that were down 15, 20, 25% that are now up on the year because the Federal Reserve would come in and support the market. Um, how we get out of this, I don't really know. I think that it's, I commend them for what they did to support the market. Um, the offset is how do you get out of it? Um, our balance sheet might be now upwards of $10 trillion, um, which is a pretty significant number. It's a big number. And the market will become reliant upon if there's ever a problem again, what's the next step? Um, people suggest that if we have another correction, the one thing the Federal Reserve has not done is purchased equities. Other central banks have. Um, that's probably the final thing that they could do to support the actual equity market itself. But they've taken some pretty unprecedented steps to support the market to make sure we don't crater. So having said that, you know, the takeaway that I'd like for our listeners is, is that, number one, none of us could have predicted what occurred. The speed at what's occurred over the last three months 
Bob, I'm doing this now 38 years. I know you're doing this a long time. I've never seen anything like it. I don't think you've ever seen anything like it. What are your thoughts on just the speed of correction? And, you know, basically I look at it as if the government basically put the economy into a coma and they're now trying to, you know, bring it back and so forth. But this has been unprecedented. Yeah, I think the one take that I have from this would be generally people never question their ability to earn. And they have a portfolio that they know that could be volatile over time. And like we do in planning all the time, what people do for a living factors greatly into one house one could allocate a portfolio. Yeah. Um, if they have businesses that are based on disposable income, a la a restaurant business, they know that if things are going well, people are going to feel more inclined to go to a restaurant. So when we plan, we factor that in. Uh, the one thing, and this was so different to me, you know, talking about how expeditious this process was, where you had people that never thought that their ability to earn would be correlated with the market. Um, case in point, an orthopedic surgeon that it's elective surgery. He never envisioned, now he has disability insurance, if God forbid something were to occur that we're not right. allowed to perform, but never one would think that the hospital will not allow you to practice because elective surgeries got thrown out. That to me was a game changer and people need to think about that going forward, how, how quickly things changed and people's ability to earn, even during a crisis, stopped. Um, and, and I think going forward, that's something that needs to be on the forefront. Um, not that I anticipate something like this happen again, but we've been doing this for 30 some odd years collectively and I've never seen anything like it. So what I take out of it is, you're always gonna anticipate volatility in the market, but very rarely do people think that that volatility has anything to do with the volatility of earnings. It has to do with the volatility of an investment. Um, and this, to me, changed things, people's mentality. It's a great insight. You know, it's interesting. This is a cheap plug, by the way, for my listeners. You can get a, ch a chuckle out of this. I am writing a new book. I've been <laughs> writing it for over a year. It's called Last Check. And the whole point of that is, is that at some point, something will create our last paycheck. And I never thought it'd be a pandemic, you know, for many people. And yet, you know, here I am editing, you know, the draft that I just sent through compliance to include this in there is like, well, who'd have ever thought? And so having said that, you know, just some of the takeaways that I like some of our listeners to get out of this is, is that I think liquidity, personal liquidity, is always a key factor and a way to protect yourself in market declines like this. I mean, Bob, you know, when you see clients and when you're talking to people, the people that have had liquidity and they know that they've got money in a non-correlated asset, they didn't have the same level of stress as someone who had 100% of their money in a growth 401k. No question. No question about it at all. And I think from a coaching side, um, I use the example of this frequently with clients, that the value of your house goes up and down every day, but it's a long-term asset to you. And if on Zillow, if your house is worth 20% more, you don't sell your house. Conversely, if Zillow says your house is down 20%, you don't buy more house. And people with qualified money and long-term money, I believe a well-balanced, diversified portfolio, you need to almost react like that and use the analogy of that's your house. And when you frame it that way, I think people, it's never easy to stomach a statement being down. You know, you need to rebalance, but there are ebbs and flows in the market and using the analogy of a house, you know, it's a long-term really good investment, right, that you pay off over time. But you can't be reactionary to what Zillow says every month. Um, so that to me is what I've tried to communicate to clients more specifically with qualified money and long-term money. 
that is there that I would have never anticipated. I don't think anybody would have anticipated. Um, this makes you rethink stress scenarios. Um, but getting back to it, you need to have the liquidity to stand it. And if as long as you can with the diversified portfolio, it's, it's okay. So, you know, my next comment with regard to, you know, you know, we mentioned liquidity is risk tolerance, which is, you know, to me, you know, for many people, this was a gut check, you know, which is, you know, if you really lost your stomach, you know, when this occurred and you were like, oh, I'm not sleeping at night, maybe you're being more risky than you actually should be. And now that things have gotten better, this might be a good time to actually resettle and get to a risk tolerance that's more appropriate for you. Yeah, yeah I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I will say, though, that there were certain asset classes that are still, I would deem, safe and conservative that, based on this liquidity situation, had mark-to-market impacts that nobody had anticipated. Um, to give you an idea, there were certain municipal bond funds in New Jersey that were down 25%. And there was Not no leverage. reason for it. There was no, they it was just nothing that's like that. Right. So when you take into account certain things like that, that it's still a relatively, you know, conservative investment for people. Um, that's the only thing I would say that things happen in this market that I wouldn't change that profile too much based on the liquidity side. That being said, if you have money in the equity market, if you have money on more credit risk assets and you couldn't stomach that, that's something you should rethink. Very good. Great insight. The other thing I would mention, too, is, is you know, um, we often assess how our portfolio is doing on a short period of time. So I know that you know people are looking and going, oh, from and they'll pick out the top of the market before the correction started. So they wouldn't even go back to January 1st. They'll go, oh, from the highest day of the year. And the reality is, is that the market has tremendous volatility. And we spoke about this a few months ago. In the course of a year, the level of volatility we have on the intraday is off the charts. Yeah. So kind of taking the temperature of a portfolio every day and looking at it is not going to do anything but make you sick. So it, it, it's not a good idea to no, always do it's, that. No, it's, it's not a good idea, and, and, but it's important to look at. Yes. Um, you can't put it in a drawer and hope for something better, but you need to be able to stomach it. And honestly, Frank, we went through a period for a year where the market just gradually grinded higher almost every day. And if you take a look at the percentage of days that the market was down 2% or up 2%, it was at historical lows. And it kind of lulls you in the complacency that you don't think that a thousand percent, a thousand point drop in a Dow is going to happen. Um, the measurement of that is called the VIX, right, that we've talked about initially, which was hovering at historical lows of 10, which hit as high as 80, by the way. Currently today, it's hovering at about 27. Um, but that to me is a pretty good measurement. Um, do I think 10 is too low? Sure. Do I think 80 is crazy high? Yes. But one should not anticipate. You are investing in credit assets. and. If you invest in an overall diversified portfolio that has risk associated with it, it should not go up every single year consistently at 6.5%, 7%. You should have years where the market's up 18% and down 2%, and down 10% and up 14%. That is the sequence of returns in a normal market, and that's why you don't react to movements to say, I, I need to get out. You, you need to have the stomach to withstand it, but don't react and decision-make off of market movements that are occurring every day. Perfect. And then the last, you know, thing, you know, just in mentioning is, you know, and we see this on every brochure, we read it on everything that past performance is not indicative of future results. 
and yet many people will go out and they'll do that past performance investing, which is, you know, they might look and go, oh, well, this is up 20% and then maybe I should own that. And they're now jumping in at the top sometimes. Maybe sometimes they're lucky when they do it, but you really can't time the market. And so having a strategy around how you invest, having you know a diversified portfolio, allowing the portfolio the time to do what it's supposed to do, rebalance automatically, in my opinion, is really key. Yeah, I, I think you have to rebalance a portfolio uh, and also be keen to opportunity. I mean, there are certain asset classes that really got penalized this year. Most of them, you know, a really good example would be something like regional banks, right? That just because they feel there's going to be a genuine credit hit. Um, I do, I do think that there are some opportunistic things to, re, to reevaluate, and just professionally, if something's up twenty percent and something's down twenty percent, you still like it. You need to be rebalanced to make sure you're there. Um, honestly, that's what's happening in the S and P right now with some of these indices and some of these bond indices and some of these funds that are balanced funds and need to be sixty forty or seventy thirty. You've had the bond market rally. You've had the equity market rally. There are pretty violent swings at the end of the month just on pure rebalancings. <laughs> Well, and fortunately, many of the portfolios that you know people have that are structured have this automatic rebalancing. So when the markets were down, there was selling that was going on. There were purchases being bought at lower values and mm-hmm. so forth. So whether they were doing it manually or had portfolios that did it, you know, you've got to have that built into what you do. It's a necessity. And I think one of the biggest challenges for everybody right now with a diversified portfolio is how you rebalance a portfolio of debt that's trading in, you know, with rates at zero which is crazy in itself. It really is. (laughs) So for all of our listeners, as we're wrapping up, I hope that you're coming away with a little bit more insight, a little bit more confidence, you know, and just, you know, knowing a little bit of what's going on. Uh, Nobody can predict the future. Um, It looks like we'll continue to have volatility. There's still a lot of uncertainty. You know, I caught an interview last night, and on the interview last night, they were saying that, you know, uh, the numbers were increasing across, you know, with COVID and everything else, and you had, you know, different parts of the country were starting to shut down again. And so we're going to continue that until this is out of the system. You know, God willing, we'll come out with a vaccine soon. It looks like there's several. Um, And then the question is going to be, then what, you know? Well, then it's the election. (laughs) And so we we go from one topic to the next. And the reality is we can't control it. All that we have to do is make sure that whatever we're doing with our finance, we're managing it accordingly. We look at our time horizons and have risk tolerance that you can deal with. So having said that, uh, it's a pleasure spending time with you. It's great to be back. Bob, thank you so much for coming Absolutely. in today. It's always a pleasure to join you, Frank. Always you know, great being with you. And for all of our listeners, again, you've been listening to Discovering Responsible Wealth. Uh, this has been Frank Angelos and Bob Farrell, and this is a production of CNA Financial Group and the Institute of Responsible Wealth. Thank you, and have a great month. Advisors of the Institute of Responsible Wealth may be licensed for investment and insurance products. The Institute of Responsible Wealth is an educational division of CNA Financial Group. CNA Financial Group and its advisors are an agency or an agent of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Park Avenue Securities is a direct, wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. The Institute of Responsible Wealth and CNA Financial Group are not affiliates or subsidiaries of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. 2020 105